0: So we're starting this evening a series in the book of Nehemiah, which will take us through until Christmas, and we've got various different people from church preaching uh, from the book of Nehemiah, and I am kicking it off this evening with Nehemiah chapter 1. So I'm going to read it for us, Uh, then we're going to spend, uh, I don't know, 20-25 minutes looking at it together, Um, and then we will um, pray and share the Lord's Supper together. So let me read these words uh, to you. The words of Nehemiah the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the utmost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you've redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Well just keep that passage open and let's uh, have a look at it and work through it together. Nehemiah's book begins with what seemingly is a chance conversation between Nehemiah and Hananiah who is his brother, probably his Real brother, not just a fellow Israelite. Hananiah, his brother, seems to have been uh, to Jerusalem, where God's people have returned from exile in Babylon. So we're we're right near the end of the Old Testament chronology. Here we're along with um, Ezra and Esther and Zechariah and Haggai. Uh, The people have been sent into exile uh, because they've been conquered by Babylon. Babylon has been defeated by the Persians, and the Persians allowed some of the exiles to return. And so, in this chance conversation between Nehemiah and his brother Hananiah, he is asking um, how it is uh, with the exiles who have returned to Jerusalem. Nehemiah, we find, is on the staff of the Persian king, Artaxerxes, which is a great name to say. You can try it later, Artaxerxes. And he's the cupbearer. He's with the king in his winter residence, we think, in Susa. And Hananiah comes to him, having returned from Jerusalem. I'm guessing for Nehemiah, he probably wasn't born in Jerusalem. He might not have even visited himself. But for him as a Jew on the staff of a Persian king, he still considered it to be home. It's where he longed to be. So Nehemiah asks his brother, hey, how is it at home? Verse two, how is it for those who have escaped the exile? How is it for those who've returned from Babylon? Babylon doesn't say what Nehemiah was expecting, but his brother and his companions don't, in verse 3, dress up their answer, do they? What do they say? They said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, I think those two sentences probably go together, that one of the sentences explains the other. I don't think that uh, Nehemiah or his brother are that bothered about the state of the walls. It's that the state of the people is reflected in the state of the wall. So the people are in great trouble and shame and Jerusalem itself is in a mess because the walls are uh, broken and the gates are burned. Jerusalem is defeated. Now just uh, pause there for a moment. Nehemiah here is well set up isn't he? Don't forget. Uh, The cupbearer's job was no lowly job. You might think that this is just some lowly servant's task to kind of pass the cup to the king. But that is a really, really important job in the ancient world. Why is that a really, really important job in the ancient world? What would... I know you're all now going, oh my goodness, he's expecting me to say something, right? What would an ancient king be terrified of? Poison, right? So, the cupbearer was one of his most loyal and trusted servants. And also, he took him with him wherever he went. We found out he's in Susa, right? So, he's there with him in his winter residence. Nehemiah has the ear of the king, he's one of the top civil servants of his day. So, the question is why should it matter to him what's going on in Jerusalem? Why should he care? And that, I think, points to what is essentially the first surprise in this passage, which is the depth of Nehemiah's emotional response. Nehemiah is heartbroken, isn't he? You get that in verse 4. As soon as he hears the words, he sits, he cries, and he mourns. Those two words basically are the same root. So it's just for emphasis, isn't it? Nehemiah cried, cried. Nehemiah mourned, mourned. And he didn't just do it for a few minutes. The passage tells us in verse 4 that he did it for days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, if you do a bit of digging, you can work out in verse 1 that it's the month of Chislev. And in chapter 2, verse 1, it's the month of Nisan. And in the ancient calendar boffins, we'll tell you that that's a gap of four months. So for four months, Nehemiah is mourn, mourning cry-crying, fasting and praying before the God of heaven, which is a long time. So we have to ask, I think, as we start off looking at the book of Nehemiah, I think this is what the passage is pushing us to ask, is, is Nehemiah right to be so emotionally involved in the progress of God's people in Jerusalem? Is Nehemiah just a bit over the top here? Is four months of heartbroken fasting and prayer the right response to the dereliction of God's people in Jerusalem? And I think you have to say, yes, Nehemiah is absolutely right. Not just because of what comes next in the book with the great rebuilding of the walls and the uh, restoration of Jerusalem, but because Nehemiah here, we find, is like who? The Lord Jesus. In your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 19, Luke chapter 19 in the New Testament. So go forwards, Luke chapter 19, it's on page 878, 878. This is Luke's account of Jesus' final entry into Jerusalem, and he finds Jerusalem, walls intact but in a similar mess to Nehemiah's day. And what does Jesus do? Well, look down at verse 41 of chapter 19. It's on page 879, verse 41. And when he drew near, he saw and saw the city, he, that is Jesus, wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. It's exactly the same kind of emotion, isn't it, that Jesus has as Nehemiah has. Jesus, too, is heartbroken at the state of God's people, the mess that their sin has left them in and the judgment that they face as a result. The Apostle Paul is exactly the same as well. So jump forwards a few more books uh, to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Again, let me give you a page number. 2 Corinthians 11 is on page 969, but we're in verse 28. So it's 970, page 970. Paul here is listing all the trouble that he's been in for his job as an apostle, all the different times that bad things have happened to him. He's been uh, beaten, he's been stoned, he's been shipwrecked. And then what does he say to cap it all off? 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, and apart from all other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul is achingly connected, isn't he, to the state of God's people. And here's the point, I think, from Nehemiah's deep emotional So Come back to Nehemiah on page 398. Here's the point, I think, from Nehemiah's deep emotional response. It's a tough point, but if we'll hear it, I think it will help us because Nehemiah shows us, I think, that the more Christ-like we are, the more troubled we will be by the messy weakness of God's people. Let me say that again. The more Christ-like we are, the more troubled we will be by the messy weakness of God's people. In other words, here in Nehemiah chapter 1, as he points us to the Lord Jesus... We will see that more of of how he does that in a moment. He points us to this reality that Christian growth is in some sense measured by a Christ-like concern for his people. And so the heartbreak here is not an overreaction, but a right reaction. Because it shows us that Nehemiah's biggest concern in life is not so much his own plans or even his own career, which is going very well, thank you very much, but God's plan and God's glory displayed in the life of his people. Which means I, I think, that the very challenging question right at the beginning of Nehemiah's book is, how Nehemiah-like or Christ-like or Paul-like, are you? Or am I? I think the uncomfortable shock in these verses is, Frank speaking frankly, is that if I was Nehemiah, I think that for me, having the daily ear of the most powerful man in the world would probably be enough for me. What about you? Well, how do we know what we would do? Well, I think actually it's not that difficult to see that God's people are in a similar mess to they were in the 5th century BC, or in AD 33 in Jesus' time, or even in uh, the late 50s AD uh, when Paul was writing. I think perhaps we're a little sheltered from it at times in Egbeth, but I don't think I need to prove the mess to you. Despite what we might think, the truth is that COVID has massively accelerated church decline in the UK, Churches across the country have struggled to get reestablished. I met up with a pastor this week who was just listing a wave of senior minister resignations, some from moral failure, others from burnout. That's not even to begin to talk about the church in Afghanistan or Pakistan or North Korea or parts of northern Nigeria. The point is, I don't think it's the success of the church that's sparing us from Nehemiah's heartbreak, is it? It's more likely our lack of care. And I think that's a challenge that Nehemiah brings to us right at the very beginning. Well, if that's the first surprise, I think the second surprise is in Nehemiah's prayer. Nehemiah's prayer takes up the biggest word count, does it, the passage. So it's uh, there all the way to the end. But despite its length, it's not really very complicated. The prayer starts with this declaration of God's covenant name, his promised name. Look at verse 5. He is, O Lord, capital letters, Yahweh in the Hebrew, I am the I am of the burning bush, the God of heaven, the supreme God above all, the great and awesome God, who does what? Well, who keeps covenant and steadfast, literally loyal, Hesed promise, love with those who love him and keep his commandments. In other words, whatever the cause of the state of God's people, Nehemiah is confident that it's not God's failure that is to blame. God is, by definition, in his very name, the keeper of promises. So verse 6, he asks that God would hear and see his prayer, a prayer, that his, a prayer that he's praying day and night. It is at its heart, though, a prayer of repentance, isn't it? Sin makes the mess, and so all he can do is confess it. Not as a stand-off priest who pretends to be innocent. Look at the end of verse 6. He and his family are included as well, aren't they? What does he say? Even I and my father's house... Have sinned, And what have they done? Verse 7, well, they've not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that came down to them through Moses. Literally, verse 6 is there, missing the mark. You know, God commands this, and they are doing this. They have missed the mark. Now there's a simple point here, I think, just about repentance in the life of the church, but I think it's worth considering in more detail because I think we can say something richer than just it's good to repent. Nehemiah's book, and this is going to take a little bit of work, so stay with me. Nehemiah's book is essentially a continuation of the book of Ezra. Okay, so Ezra was one of the first people to go, well, not the first people; he was one of the people to go back from Babylon to Jerusalem uh, to rebuild it. Like I said before, their contemporaries are people like Esther and Haggai and Zechariah. Uh, And when you look at those books, what do you think is the cause of the problems for God's people? Uh, Haggai and his contemporary Zerubbabel, which is another great name, Zerubbabel, rebuke the people for living in panelled houses while they haven't finished the work on the temple. You might remember that. And true, there was a problem with the returning exiles in intermarrying with the foreign nations and all that sort of thing. But I think as you read through those books, on the whole, I think it's quite difficult to find anybody more faithful in teaching the Bible in the Bible than Ezra, right? He was a great guy. He loved the Lord. He loved God's word. He taught clearly and carefully. Esther and Mordecai, brilliant examples of living for the Lord in tough circumstances. I I think as you read through these kind of post-exile books, the thing that springs to mind so much is not the sin of God's people, which I think springs to mind before the exile. It's actually the oppression of God's people which springs to mind, I think. Which means when you come to look at this prayer in a bit more detail, the question for us in the prayer, when you you see it and read the narrative, the, the problem seems to be more about the opposition to God's people than the sin of God's people. And if that's right, why is Nehemiah so keen to repent earnestly rather than call down judgment from God on their oppressors? Do you see the dilemma? You can feel it in the church as well today, can't you? What is to blame for the mess in our church life? or the challenges that face the wider church in the UK and beyond. Aren't we struggling against a godless culture? Aren't the priorities and sensibilities of those outside the church the biggest issue? Isn't the greatest threat to belief in God uh, atheism, not sinners inside the church? Well, I think that answer gets us right to the heart of the text Because the point that Nehemiah understands is this, the covenant promises of God are lived out in a life of repentance and faith. This is the shape of the Christian life, as Nehemiah understands it. God, the great God to whom all of us owe everything, the one who made us, owns us, is right to tell us what is right and wrong in our world. We have rebelled against him and lived for ourselves. And the only right response to God is to turn from our sin to repent and put our trust in him in the hope that his covenant promises will bring forgiveness and grace and mercy from God. So repentance, demonstrated by obedience as he says it here, is always, he says, the right response to God's covenant promise of forgiveness. A covenant which guarantees the perseverance and prosperity of God's people. So what does he say in verse 8? He asks that God might remember. God, please remember your promise to forgive your people when they say sorry for their sin. Please remember that. Of course, he knows that God will. The covenant asks the people, verse 9, to return to him and keep his commandments. Then God will gather and bring them back to himself. And they will be, verse 10, his people who he has redeemed, literally bought, with great power and a strong arm or strong hand. I'm going, try and, I'm going to try and illustrate it. I'm not sure where the illustration works, but it did in my study on Friday evening. So let me try it now and see whether this works, okay? Because I think this is important to get this right in our heads. Imagine for a moment that I asked you to drive a car through eastern Ukraine and into Russia, okay? I gave you the keys to a car, and I said, listen, I want you to drive it from Kiev, I don't know, what's the city in the Russian side? Anyway, right through the war zone, Okay? It's a a terrifying prospect. People are going to be shooting at you. Drones are going to be following you. Mortars will be landing all around. But I I promise you, as I hand you the keys to the car, I promise you, by some means that I haven't really understood yet, but by some means, I promise you that you will definitely make it to the other side. You will be safe. You will make it into Russia. You will definitely make it to the other side. All you have to do is what? Keep going. Keep driving. Keep going. Now, imagine... You're on your way. You're driving the car through the battlefield, and the bullets are flying all around you. There's some mortars landing either side of you. Some bullets have come through the car itself, they've grazed you. Your ears are ringing with the sound of the missiles and the bombs. And in all of the chaos, you've taken your foot off the gas, and your car is slowing down. And more bullets are coming through, and more mortars are landing. You're now at a walking pace. In the middle of the battle. What's the problem? What can you do? Well, I've promised you, because I can promise you by some means that I can't really describe, but I've promised you that you will make it through. If only you do what? Keep going, right? I've not promised that you won't take a few bullets. I've not promised you that the car will be shiny when you get there. I've promised that you will get there. All you need to do is keep your foot on the gas. Keep your foot on the gas. Now listen, in a really roundabout way, that's the point here. God has promised his people in the covenant in a promise that he cannot break, that he will bring his people to glory, okay? That despite all that is thrown at them, he will build his church and the gates of hell will never prevail against it. But the engine of the church is what? Well, it's the gospel, isn't it? It's the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. But how does the gospel go? How do we receive this forgiveness from God? Well, as we repent and believe in the gospel. And then it rips through our lives, doesn't it, the gospel, bringing joy and life and hope and energy, assuring sinners like us that we're loved, assuring the lost that they're found, the hopeless that they're treasured and wanted and have a home in glory. In other words, if the gospel is the engine of the car, then repentance and faith is the gas, the accelerator, And the more the bullets fly, what do you wanna do? Press harder and harder and harder on the accelerator, yeah? So for Nehemiah, he might rightly understand that the trouble facing God's people is in large part coming from outside, but the only pedal he has is repentance and faith, and so he presses it hard. He knows that that is how the covenant works. Turn to God, trust in him, repent of your sin, he will bring you through. Turn to God, repent of your sin, trust in him, and he will bring you through. Now, of course, we know that better than even Nehemiah, don't we? We know that the covenant that Nehemiah is talking about here is consumed by the new covenant in Christ's blood. We know that Jesus didn't just weep for our mess, but shed his own blood for it on the cross. We know that the engine of the gospel functions on the atoning work of Christ on the cross where sinners are bought and forgiven and adopted into his family. And the gas pedal, still, repentance and faith. Now, of course, then, there's a very easy and simple application for us, too. It it might be that you're sat here this evening, or even stood in front of you this evening. We might not feel that our sin is the greatest problem in the church right now. We just might not feel that. And we might be right to not feel that, right? Because there might be bigger problems in the life of the church. We might not feel together that it's the sin of us as a collective that is the biggest threat to the strength and health of our local church. And that might be right too. There might be bullets coming through our car from all sorts of different angles. But the point is there's only one gas pedal in the church and it's repentance and faith in Christ. So whatever's going on, hit it hard. Hit it hard. So much so that the ability of our church to pass through whatever the trouble is that we face, wherever it's coming from, is related to our willingness to push hard into repentance. You don't have to just take my word for it. Jump to the New Testament again, to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy is on page 991. I'm sorry for making you turn to so many passages of the Bible, but it gives me a break and makes me realize that you are awake. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, page 991. Okay, 1 Timothy is written to Timothy. Okay, there you go. You've all learned something this evening. It's written to Timothy. And he is working in the church in Ephesus, which by all accounts is facing a bit of difficulty. So if you look down at verse 3, I urge you, says uh, Paul to Timothy, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Okay, so Paul says... Uh, Paul says to his friend Timothy, listen, please, please stay in Ephesus to sort out this mess because people are teaching all sorts of different nonsense. And then he goes on to articulate a little bit more about what the difficulty is. Um, see you guys, thanks for coming. Don't, you don't have to sneak out, it's alright, it's really lovely to see you, thanks for coming. So he writes to him and says, right, this is how you're going to sort out the mess. And he describes the mess in a little bit more detail. Okay, so look down at those verses. It seems as though there are people in the church who are Bible teachers, but they're not teaching properly. So verse 8, now we know that the law in the Bible, the scriptures, is good if one uses it lawfully. And then he goes on to explain. I'm not going to go into all the detail of that, but I think the unlawful use of the law in the context means that they're using the Bible in a non-gospel-centered way. Okay, so they're they're using the Bible to teach something other than the gospel of grace and forgiveness in Christ. You can ask me about that later if you like. So what does Paul do next? Okay, imagine, Timothy, you're in Ephesus, people are teaching nonsense, you need to straighten it out. What's what's Paul gonna say next? What's gonna come next? He's gonna go, right, okay, let me tell you. This is how you straighten out dodgy people in the church. Well, he doesn't see, look what he says in uh, verse 15. Where does he go next? The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. It's astonishing, isn't it? What does Paul do to demonstrate to Timothy what it looks like to be a faithful minister of the gospel in Ephesus? Well, to use our illustration, he hits the gas. Or as I used to say to my girls when teaching them to drive our 2CV up Rose Lane, give it the bifters or you won't make it to the top. Okay, he hits the gas pedal, doesn't he? He repents publicly. And says, listen, I'm the worst of sinners. But I'm the worst of sinners so that you might know. What does he say if you keep looking down? But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, the foremost, Jesus Christ, might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Listen, guys. He says, I've found grace and forgiveness in the Lord Jesus. If I can, anyone can So go for that. So can I encourage you this evening to do the same? In our church, for the sake of the church worldwide, for the glory of God with full confidence in the saving, gracious power of God's covenant, to take these moments that we'll have around the Lord's table in a moment, just to say in your heart, Lord, I'm a sinner. (laughs) I'm really sorry. I trust in your grace. Please get us through. Please get us through. Finally then, let's just deal with this more briefly. I have no idea how long we've been spending on this, but here we go. The last one, Nehemiah's action. Nehemiah then acts, doesn't he? In verse 11, you see that Nehemiah knows that he needs to speak to the king to see if he might be merciful to him and let him go and help God's people. Of course, this isn't a contradiction, is it, of what we've just said. It's not a contradiction of covenant trusting repentance. This is the overflow of his obedience to the Lord. He sees he's in a unique position given the opportunity that he has to do something about the state of God's people. And that to press on with that, he's going to need a bit of God-given courage, trusting in God, repenting of his sin. He needs God to enable him to act. So he prays, doesn't he, and asks God to give him success in the sight of the king. And we'll find out next week. I think it's uh, Rich Grindy who's preaching. We'll find out next week what happens. I wonder if here you've got the nearest you're going to get to the answer to the question, Why does God allow the church to be in such weakness and in such messiness? Why? Why has God allowed Jerusalem to get in such a mess? I think the nearest you get to an answer is because he wants his people to live their lives relying on God and not themselves. I think that's the answer. That God longs for us, for Nehemiah, to keep trusting him and not themselves. Not as an excuse for inaction, but meaning that any action that we do take, we take not in our own strength, not believing that we are able to fix it, but knowing that if anything is done, it's done because God has done it through us. So that's where Nehemiah ends his prayer. Please, Lord, give me success as I go do what I think I can do. So there you go. Nehemiah 1's lessons for our local church. One, care deeply about the state of God's people, care deeply. Secondly, repent hard and continually. And finally, act in the unique way that God has enabled you, trusting that he alone can bring us safely home. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, how we thank you for your great love and mercy for us. Thank you that your covenant is trustworthy, that you have promised that we will make it home. Lord, forgive us that we are too easily satisfied with the things of this world and don't care as deeply as we should about the state of the church and of your people worldwide. Help our primary response to that to be to repent hard and continually, trusting in the gospel of grace and forgiveness. And give us the courage like Nehemiah, to act in the unique ways that you have given us, given the opportunities and gifts that we have, that you might use us for the sake of your glory on the way home. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. We're going to sing uh, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Let's uh, stand and sing this.